Happy Thanksgiving, Midnight Warriors, and thank you for joining us for our 25th episode of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallagher. On this very special episode of the show, we're broadcasting a live video stream of our reactions while we listen to all 32 hours of the War Starts at Midnight archives in reverse chronological order. Uh, Chris, can I give you a rain check? I got somewhere I need to be in like an hour. <sighs> okay, fine. Whatever. Uh, let's just pick something from, I don't know, your war crimes list. Uh, oh, here we go. How about Peter Bogdanovich's 1973 Depression-era con man picture, Paper Moon? Okay, that'll work nicely with the special features I wanted to talk about this week. Surviving the 70s, why some Hollywood New Wave directors made it, and some did not. Sounds like a plan. Then we can wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Chris, this being Thanksgiving week, I think it would be a good idea for you and I to discuss some of the things from 2015 cinematically that we're thankful for. Okay. We're going to confine it to cinema that because you and I are simple, unsophisticated men and probably can't really converse about anything else. Yep. So, nope. would, <laughs> so would you like to begin the conversation or should I kick things off? Um, I'll begin the conversation only because I think we all know where I'm going first. Yes, might as well. And that's Dangerous Men. Uh, Dangerous Men is a movie that if you are a regular listener, you know, I absolutely love and never thought I would see again. And it is currently playing in theaters right now. And, uh, December 11th, it'll be available to rent and stream and the entire world can see it from there. So, um, it, it, you know, it really couldn't be a better year for cinema for me. Actually, I would say probably 50 years from now or so, whenever you're looking back on your life, 2015 will be circled in your memory books, probably comparable to the birth of a child. Yeah. In fact, yeah. getting to see the, the rebirth, <laughs> the rebirth of a weird, goofy, odd, but lovable child. Absolutely. Um, well, I would say that 2015 overall has been a year we can be pretty thankful for overall. It's, yeah. it's, it's yeah, a it's, lot of good stuff. I would say... For me, I would say it's uh, it hasn't been you know the highest highs, but it hasn't been some of the terrible lows either. Like we're reaching the end of the year, and it's not a place where I'm feeling like, oh man, what am I going to populate a top ten list with, or that sort of thing. Yeah, um, it, it, we we we've got a lot to pick from. Well, and one of the sources of those that there's a lot to pick from is what I'm thankful for. It's Walt Disney Studios. What I like about Walt Disney is that this is a conglomerate that could probably represent the evil movie corporation more than any mm -hmm. as far as sacrificing quality art for the sake of commercial prospects. And they certainly have. And it is, well, over, and, over, over, the, over the course, course of their, of, yeah, their over the history, course of their yeah. existence. But over the past, however, you know, five, ten years, they have been able to manage both quality with also incredible commercial success. And we see that in Pixar. We've seen that in Marvel. And I suspect, I hope, I pray, we will soon be seeing that with uh, Lucasfilm yeah, properties. Fingers crossed. And here's the thing is I don't want to jinx it because, you know, I have that power over time and space. But I think that... Even if Star Wars isn't what we're all hoping it will be, it will still be better than whatever George Lucas was going to do with it or could do with that's, it. That's what it sounds like. I mean, the there was something that came out last week, I believe, about um, – it was uh, maybe Vanity Fair uh, did a – you know what I'm talking about? They did a little interview It wasn't with, Vanity Fair. I don't think that I know what you're talking okay. about. Yeah. They they did a little interview with uh, George Lucas and then they, they also had George Lucas and other people ask J.J. Abrams questions about, about stuff. And then – I think maybe maybe it wasn't from this. Maybe it was from something else within the week. But it kind of came out that um, George Lucas George, is crazy. <laughs> well, George Lucas isn't even sure what they're going to do with the uh, with this trilogy because he kind of laid out what he wanted, and apparently Abrams and um, his I can't remember the guy Lawrence Casden. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't Lawrence Casden. It was it was somebody else sat down and said. Or maybe it was Lawrence Kasdan. You're probably right. Uh, sat down and said, "Oh, well, um, this story's not good. It's it's very melodramatic." That's, and so how let's do you just have that it. How do you have that conversation with uh, with George Lucas? I don't think they did. Some, oh, okay. I think that's the thing. Is like George Lucas, like he he was like, "Here's the stuff, and here's what I want it to be." Well, and then and then they came back and they were like. Hey, you know what you want it to be? We're not going to do that. Well, and then you and I, you you and I, being in uh, semi-creative fields in our occupational setting, we're we're experienced in the in the being in that awkward situation where you have to either present something that nobody likes yeah, or receive yeah. something that nobody likes, and so to compound that by both the Star Wars property and the fact it's George Lucas, I can only imagine that. 
whether it was in person or not in person, that was not very comfortable. That was probably mm-hmm. the hardest thing JJ Abrams had to do. Yeah, no, I'm I'm sure it was I'm sure it was tough. And he seemed to in that uh that little I think the question that George Lucas asked him was, What happens to Darth Vader's grandkids? Which makes me assume that like George Lucas really wanted the story to continue with Luke's children and Leia's children, which it doesn't seem like we're getting. Um, and, and Abram's re- reaction was great. He was, he was like, George, you invented all of this. You made all this shit up. You tell me. Yeah. He just, uh, his reaction was to sit, sit there and blink. <laughs> well, it, it was to, I think, I think it was very, a very good reaction. Cause it was like, you have, you have your, you know, the, the universe is big enough. You have your, you know, Exactly. You go over there. I have, I have mine. I mean, if he wants to make a comic book or a cartoon or whatever out of it, I'm sure, I'm sure he could work out a deal where he's like, Hey, I know I gave you all the rights, but let me just do this one off thing. But in any event, I am thankful to Walt Disney studios for extracting, uh, Papa George from the process. So that's my thankful thing. Uh, do you have another? I have, you know, I, I have a little stocking stuffer, I guess. We're, we're just going to yeah. put Thanksgiving and Christmas together. Um, Everyone the, else does. You might as well. Yeah. The the fact that uh, we got two Noah Baumbach films this year. and um, Which is actually, even though I like his pictures, that would probably qualify as something I'm not thankful for. Because all he's managed to do is expo- expose more fissures in my <laughs> psyche. <laughs> but it's, uh, you know, not... Um, not my favorite of his films, but not bad films either. So just, you know, a plethora of, of Bombeck in a, uh, in a year when there haven't been a lot of my, you know, my favorite directors haven't had a lot coming out. So that was a nice sort of one, two punch over the, uh, like spring and summer season. All right. And, uh, I think I'll, this is probably as good a way to, uh, close it out. I am thankful that there was, as you said, there was not a whole lot of low lows. Mm-hmm. Usually whenever there's a truly terrible picture, there will, most years it seems like if there's a really bad picture, at least one will do well, whether it's Transformers or Pirates of the Caribbean 16 or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. This year, that terrible picture I would say was Fantastic Four, and it didn't do well. So in some ways, I would That's say true. that the, the movie gods exacted I, justice on I, unquality pictures. I'm, I'm going to play a little devil's advocate just to get your blood boiling a little bit. I, I'm a little bit in the camp of, while I didn't hate Jurassic World, it did make a lot of money for what it is. It's, uh, well, um, for what it is, I think it was exactly, I mean, here we go. We can just talk, <laughs> go back to episode whatever it was, and you can hear what we said. And yeah. that, that, was, that was probably a more pure reaction. Yeah, but definitely. it was it was as good as the fourth picture in a 20-year-old franchise could possibly be. Yeah, that's fair. I I'm just my my only like reaction here is that I don't know if it's the top-grossing film of the year good, but um that's fine. It's probably I mean, I can't think of anything on that scale that um competes with it either. So Right. Well, it's, other than like I would I would love to say that Mad Max beat it out. It's it's better than Transformers is better than it, what you know what I mean. Those, those are legitimately Definitely. bad pictures. You, a case could be made the Jurassic World is if you're not a fan, it's you know a, a B minus picture, something like that, B minus C okay. plus. But it's not objectively what's going on here. That's it's bad. not the worst thing I've seen on screen. Not yeah. the worst thing I've seen on screen all year. Yeah, because so, it's not called Magic Mike Double. Exactly. Uh, so that it, those are the things that uh, Chris and I are thankful for. But we'd love to hear what you are thankful for in 2015. Please let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. In the meantime, stick around as Chris and I discuss my war crime, Peter Bogdanovich's 1973 Paper Moon. All right, maybe we got the same job. But same job don't mean same blood. I know a woman looks like a bullfrog, but that don't mean she's the damn thing's mother. You met my mom in a bar room. For God's sakes, child. You think everybody gets met in a bar room gets a baby? It's possible. Anything is possible, but possible don't make it true. And I want my money! Will you quiet down? You know what the trouble is with you? You've got no appreciation. All right. Maybe I did get a little money from that man, and you're entitled to that. But I'm entitled to my share for getting it for you, ain't I? Now, where do you think you'd be without me? You think them folks would spend a penny to send you east? No, sir. But who got you a ticket to St. Joe? Who got you a knee-high in a Coney Island? And threw in $20 extra. Not to mention 85 cents for that telegram. You wouldn't have had any of that without me. Now, I didn't have to take you, but I took you, didn't I? All right, I think that's fair enough. We're both a little better off. You get to St. Joe, I get myself a little better car. Fair is fair. Now, drink your knee high and eat your Coney Island. I want my $200. 
I don't have your two hundred dollars no more, and you know it. If you don't give me my two hundred dollars, I'm gonna tell a policeman how you got, and he'll make you give it to me because it's mine. But I don't have it. Then get it. Every so often, Hunter and I like to take a break from the new release beat and discuss a seminal film from the past that one or both of us has somehow overlooked. This time around, we're discussing Hunter's war crime, Paper Moon. This book adaptation set in the Great Depression stars real-life father and daughter Ryan and Tatum O'Neill as Moe's Prey and Addie Loggins. Moe's is a two-bit con man who makes a living any way he can, as long as it's not decent. His primary stratagem involves peddling Bibles to newly widowed women at the insistence that their husbands placed orders for them just before their untimely departure from this earthly plane. Addie is a recently orphaned nine-year-old girl who is often mistaken for a nine-year-old boy. Long before her death, Addie's mom became acquainted with Moe's after, quote, meeting in a barroom. This fact, in conjunction with the observation that the two share a similar jawline, convinces Addie that Moe's must be her father, an allegation he sternly denies. After a heated debate that's accompanied by a healthy lunch of knee-high soda and a Coney Island dog, Moe's agrees to pay Addie the $200 he grifted from his mother's killer's brother. But there's just a little catch. He's already spent about half the cash. So the two hit the road in hopes that Moe's can repay the debt through the old victimless crime of Bible-slinging. Hunter, as you know, the early works of Peter Bogdanovich, and Paper Moon in particular, are near and dear to my heart. Heck, I even named a dog after Little Addie. You, on the other hand, have a bit of a contentious relationship with the director. Not necessarily as a professional, but as an individual. This is something I've never quite been able to grasp the origin of, but I assume it has something to do with that persistent neckerchief he wears. So, I'm curious... Did that creepy feeling you get any time you think of Bogdanovich alter your enjoyment of this picture? And furthermore, how do you rank this film based solely on its merits? Are you going to join me in singing the praises of Paper Moon? Or are we going to need to step out back, kick off our shoes, and get to wrestling? You know, Chris, um, that final prospect, I'm not sure that you and I are the ones to do it, but that would be a much more interesting prospect for a podcast, is two people (laughs) who, if they don't like something... Uh, if they don't like a movie or TV show, they just settle whether or not it's good by fighting over it. I, they, 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 you, you've got a, you've got an idea here. Maybe you know, you, and you're right. Maybe it's not us, but we could, we could launch a sister podcast with other folks. Yes, who do two, this. two MMA style folks of you know. I liked uh, I liked Hunger Games Part Two more than Hunger Games Part Three, and then they fight over it, and that's how they turn. I'm Team Edward, and I'm Team Jacob, and then they uh-huh. uh, fight over it. It's a pretty um, good gimmick. No, absolutely. Uh, First of all, before we even begin our review of this film, I would like to say that even though I do not always practice what I preach, I'm a firm believer that you should not judge a book by its cover. The exception being if that book wears a neckerchief or an (laughs) ascot, in which case you should be treated with extreme prejudice. (laughs) So regarding Peter Bogdanovich, here, let me uh, let me kind of set the stage for you. The reason I've avoided Paper Moon, or mm-hmm. not even not avoided, but just not really actively sought it out it, because of Peter Bogdanovich, is I feel that a sartorial decision can also affect a cinematic decision. Style in both what you, your fashion can also be evidenced in the style of your filmmaking. Okay, And so when I see a neckerchief or an ascot, I think pretension and pompousness. And so I was always mm-hmm. concerned that Paper Moon was going to be pretentious and pompous. Although and I will say, I'm pretty sure, you know, I've seen some behind the scenes stuff, some production. And he's not I don't, I don't, I don't think he, I don't think he got the ask out of the neckerchief yet. It hadn't, it hadn't dawned on him that he needed to wear. I think wear that's, this well, I think his, his career kind of went south after this picture, maybe the one after it. So maybe that was how he tried to revive his career is adopting an ascot. <laughs> but my thinking is if you're a grown man dressing like Fred from Scooby-Doo, mm-hmm. then I'm going to uh, treat you with prejudice. That's, <laughs> that said, um, I well, actually one more setting the stage if you don't mind. Okay. In our war starts at midnight bunker, there are four posters on the wall, Midnight Warriors, and one of them is Paper Moon. Yes. Which means that twenty five percent of the war starts <laughs> at midnight bunker wall space is dedicated to Paper Moon. So take that to mean that Chris has a genuine I, passion yeah, for this picture. It's, it's it's a movie that I really. So love. I'm going to try and provide as much suspense as possible. Given the circumstances, when it comes to Paper Moon, I I really liked it. I thought it was a good picture. I, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, 
I will say this. I'm not going to dedicate wall space to it, <laughs> nor am fair. I going to name a child or a canine after it. But no, I, I thought this was a, a really good movie. It was um, it was very touching, which mm-hmm. was, I, I think, the point. I will say this about it. I don't think that it's transcendent. And okay. by that, what I mean... You, yeah, what do you mean by that? I think it's... Uh, if I were to see it at the time, I would say, this is a really good movie. Three and a half stars out of four, four stars, something like that. But it's not something that I think is on the same level as other 70s pictures as, say, a taxi driver or a godfather, something like that. Okay. I, I wouldn't put it on their level. And I think we're going to probably get more into this. this and, no, yeah, this, it, this is something that I wanted to discuss, but I wanted to discuss in special features. Yeah, it's more of a special features There's topic. There's a lot to discuss in that range yeah this is yeah so i would say paper moon is a great movie but it's not a greatest movie ever okay that's uh i'm i'm you know i'm happy with that i was legitimately worried about this review because like if you didn't we would like have it, to wrestle yeah if you didn't like it i was gonna be devastated i think because absolutely heartbroken it's, it's, well let me ask you do you, i mean given that it, it did you just really like the poster uh, or do you truly put it in your top 10 top five or is it just it just has an affection for you yeah it's it's definitely in my top 10 uh, I can watch this film at any time. And actually rewatching it uh, this past week, I realized that I like this movie even more than I thought I did. Like this was the best watch I've had. And I've probably, this is probably the, I don't know, I'd say fourth or fifth time that I've seen it. Was it, now was this a discovering new things experience or was it more just, wow, I really, really um, enjoyed this. It was, it was a little bit of, it wasn't exactly discovering new things, but it was things that already worked for me, worked even better or, um, there, I guess there were, there were some things that I, I picked up on. I'd never really noticed the, uh, whole, her obsession with, uh, Frankie Roosevelt as she calls him. Um, and there's, there's a very nice, delicate touch to the way that it handles the fact that it's set in the depression. And I think that's very interesting because it it could very easily, when trying to approach it in that way, it could very easily turn into life is beautiful where it's like, oh, hey, I'm going to dress up like a clown and, you know, in, in a, in a concentration camp. And that's that never, and that's never what you want. Your, if, filmmakers out there, if you're listening, do not allow your film to turn into life is beautiful. You may win an Oscar, but you'll, you'll hate yourself. Yeah. And, and deservedly so. And so. Like, I, I think there is a nice, it is, you, I, what, what was the term you used? Touching or? Yes. Okay. It's, it is certainly touching and in the right, in the right way, um, to just briefly touch on your sort of comparing it to, to other seventies films. Um, we can, we can definitely get into this more in, in special features, but, um, it's a film that it's odd because it's set in the thirties. It's very much, you know, it's shot in black and white, beautiful black and white shot by Laszlo Kovacs. Um, and so it, it has this feel of being a movie from a, a an older time, which now, actually, I'm, gonna dis- I'm actually going to disagree with you on that because I felt that it very much looked, was edited and had a tone and flow of a seventies picture. Editing and flow. Yes, I, I totally agree. And, and you know, the, the fact that she's smoking and, and <laughs> uses words like shit house. Uh, sure. Like that, that feels like a seventies picture, but then the, there, there is a, I don't know, visually, I think there's, there's a nature. I mean, that, that infinite depth of field that it has, um, which actually, I mean, you, you know, this, uh, uh, Bogdanovich was really good friends with, uh, Orson Welles. Orson Welles. And Orson Welles was a huge fan of black and white. He, he always said that it was the actor's friend. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he actually gave Kovacs a few you know, pointers on like, okay, well you need, you need to use a red lens because it pops out the skin, makes it, you know, this milky white and then contrast with, with the, uh, the sky and, you know, things like that. Um, so it, there is a intentional, like trying to recreate that. And if you, if you compare it to something like the last picture show, which is also in black and white, also Bogdanovich's first film, you know, other than the targets, targets that he yeah. made with, uh, Boris Karloff. Yeah. Um, kind of all of like, a sudden it sounds like I'm the, maybe, I, maybe it's just that I've been stalking Peter Bogdanovich. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, that movie is, you know, shot in black and white set takes place in like this fifties, Texas rundown, Texas town. Um, that feels much more progressive and modern than paper moon does to me, as far as, uh, the way that it's, it's kind of throwing these, uh, conventional, uh, you know, conventional small town, those things up against the wall and then saying, but underneath all that, here's what you get. There's, there's sex and depravity and, 
um, you know, getting, getting deeper to like human emotion with, I mean, that Cloris Leachman character is very just, you're talking about last picture show, last picture show. Whereas this, I, I feel like it is on the surface more of a, of a send up a throwback. And it's not, it's not trying to expose the unseen, unseemly side of humanity. In fact, it might be the opposite is it's taking a character who is pretty reprehensible, not pretty reprehensible, is reprehensible, mm-hmm. and then giving him something of a heart without being schmaltzy about yeah. it. Yeah, but he is he is also never, um, like I said, it's its almost a victimless crime um, in that— especially, I don't know, depression, it, selling a Bible for 10 to 15 bucks. Well, but especially when Addie comes along. Addie is sort of his conscience. So she realizes, like, if someone is well off, she's like, oh, let's let's take him for, instead of selling a Bible for eight bucks, let's sell it for 12. So she's just kind of a Bernie it, Sanders type. <laughs> <laughs> she, yeah, I, I guess so. She's, that Frankie Roosevelt, she's listening to him and saying, exactly. you know, give the, the people who need it, let's just balance it yeah. all out. Um, but because, yeah, initially she, it seems like she's kind of against what's going on. Um, she wants her $200 back, but she realizes that he's, He's looking up these widows, these recently widowed women, and, you know, it seems like she's kind of on the fence. And then it's with the first, you know, sort of uppity rich white lady that she finds that uh, she kind of gets him out of hot water because the sheriff is over at the house and he thinks he's about to get arrested. And they end up upselling the the Bible. And then the next time uh, they go to this house and he's... uh, he's about to pull the con on the lady and you see, I don't know how many kids it's probably like six or seven or eight kids. Like they just slowly as the scene mm-hmm. goes on, populate the, the background and Addie, instead of, you know, saying, yeah, we, you know, this is, this is an $8 Bible. She says, Oh, you know what? He already paid for this one. So there's a little bit of when I say victimless, it's not totally victimless, but they are not straight up. I mean, the other thing they they rob bootleggers. You know, he's not robbing banks. This isn't this isn't Body and Clyde or something like that. Me being me, I'd like to play a devil's advocate of, here of for you. Of course you would. Um, let's here here. I mentioned that I think Peter Bogdanovich as a person is pretty pretentious, and then I also think that he's one of those people who just likes to hang out with his betters and then then brag about it he's a he's a real uh, well and and he started out as a journalist uh, but to first, me but, a, a but film writer. it's one of those things it seems less that i'm doing this to praise film and be a film journalist and more hey look at all the cool people i've hung out does that and that that coolness is leaking I, off to me i don't know about, like i i've always kind of seen his because yeah you're orson wells howard hawks uh um John Ford, Ford, right? Like he and John Ford, of course, had none of it. So I, I admire him all which the is, more. For which that. is great. Like I don't know if have you ever seen I any have, of those man. interviews? Oh my gosh! It's like yeah. when he's trying to like get Pro- probably the the absolute opposite of inside the actor studio. Inside yeah, the actor yeah. studio, <laughs> if it's taking a gross out comedian and them trying to demonstrate how they are doing art. The opposite would be directed by John Ford, <laughs> in which he is giving one and two yeah. word answers to his filmmaking or, approach. Or Bogdanovich will like give him a softball and and be like, "Well, don't you think that you were trying to say this, this, and this with it?" And then Ford just looks at him and goes, "No, we're trying to make a movie." Exactly, <laughs> Mr. Ford. You made a picture called Three Bad Men, which was a large scale western, and you had a quite elaborate land rush in it. Mm-hmm. How did you shoot that? With a camera. So anyway, my my personal opinion of Bogdanovich is he seems a little pretentious and then kind of a pastiche of his yeah, betters. I, I did think you do you get that from this at all at any point? And ever were, before you saw it, were you worried about that? Like I was. Um, I wasn't worried about it before you were because I wasn't very familiar with him before I saw this in college. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, in in the context of a '70s cinema class. So there you um, go. Yeah, and uh, it was it was an interesting like it was being. You know, we're we're watching films like Easy Rider and um, maybe Raging Bull, and you know these these sort of Taxi Driver, that sort of stuff. And it definitely stood out as a different. So it was kind of you know I think it was in the middle of the semester, mm-hmm. and so it was a nice like who who is this guy you know sort of mm-hmm. a thing. And um and and so after that I checked out I checked out Last Picture Show, which I really like for very different reasons. Um, and what's up doc, which, I mean, if you want to talk about a movie from the seventies, that is not a seventies movie. I think that's the one that really proves that Bogdanovich is hung up on a different era. Um, do you think that recommends him or do you think that that makes him a lesser filmmaker? Um, I think, 
you know, I, I don't think it makes him a lesser filmmaker, but I do think it makes him a filmmaker with less longevity, which, uh, I think we'll get into a little later. Yeah. Um, um it, it's, it's one of those things where if you're constantly trying to do send up, um, it's tough to keep that ball rolling with fresh ideas. Well, and actually, and, and this feels to me like the apex of his taking something that, that has all the things that he's fascinated with, but then also interjecting his own style into it. In to, many ways, he's kind of an anti, a non-violent, non-gratuitous uh, Quentin Tarantino. Because I think that's what you get a lot with Quentin maybe, Tarantino's pictures I, is I just think, reflections of prior pictures of yeah, prior but filmmakers. I, I feel like Tarantino's are more, Tarantino's pictures are more vastly like, I'm stealing from this and this and this and this. Whereas... Bogdanovich seems to be more like, okay, now I'm going to make a slapstick Very comedy. clearly remaking now a I'm gonna, genre. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think, I'm not sure if it was just before, or just after Paper Moon. I think it was just before Paper Moon, um, after uh, Last Picture Show. He was actually trying to make a Western. Like he wanted to make, he wanted to make a Howard Hawks Western, essentially. Mm-hmm. And it all kind of fell through. The The screenwriter then turned it into a novel. Larry McMurtry? Yes. Okay. Which became Lonesome Dove, which then became the TV miniseries, et cetera. Um, so that's – and that's – I feel like that's the way – the right way that should have gone because I think he would have gotten too schmaltzy making a Western. Like as much as I would like to see Bogdanovich's 70s Western – it would have been. It probably would have been the pick, just like the picture that I think killed seventy cinema, which we will get <laughs> we, to, okay, okay. which we will That's... get to here in a moment. One final uh, devil's advocate thing. Okay. Another reason I've avoided this picture, not just the Bogdanovich prejudice, but also Ryan O'Neill. I've avoided him because he just there's something a little slimy about him. Uh-huh. I actually thought he was very charming in this. Okay, so we have the exact opposite. Like this is the first thing I'd ever seen Ryan O'Neill in, and so I've given him a lot of. Like, well, here's the thing. The very first thing I ever saw Ryan O'Neill in was him trying to exploit Farrah Fawcett in her final days to okay, revive okay. his own uh, popularity. So that's You're just bringing a whole lot of personal baggage. I, to I this. know it's not fair because it's not like I do this with, say, yeah. you know, Clint Eastwood or something like that. Yeah. But at the same time, if, if, if I am worried that their work will be reflective of who mm-hmm. I think they are. Then that then that it won't make necessarily make me dislike the picture, but I will try and avoid it. I'm actually having the same conflict with Woody Allen, but that's a whole nother conversation. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I can understand that. But it sounds like you did come out mostly on the side of like it. Yeah, no, it it's a good picture. And, it, and so anyway, that brings my devil's advocate thing. When I was watching this, I was thinking of, boy, Chris Pratt would be good in this role. <laughs> Given that this is a picture that is not necessarily on everyone's radar yeah. nowadays, how would you feel about it being remade? I think it could be remade. I think it would need to be remade with a delicacy that, um, you know, it, it would have to be like, you know who I think would be interesting at remaking this? You, you might be able to guess, actually. It's it's one of my like, sort of go-to pocket. Wes directors. Anderson? No, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't that would be, be, that'd be a bit much. And, and, you know, Wes Anderson would be, he would say he's making Paper Moon and then he would make a completely different right. movie that just has the characters with oh. the same name. Um, okay, my second guess, Coen Brothers? I had not thought about Coen Brothers. Coen Brothers, they could do it. They could they could faithfully do it, and their screenplay would be amazing. Um, like they they have the right. There there is a certain pace to the way uh, they they have an ear for yeah, the dialogue and the yeah, tone yeah. and and, and the, the dialogue is part of what works so so well in this. No, I was going to say Richard Ayoade, um, who okay. did he did submarine, he did the double. Um, he he just I I think stylistically he has the right. He's very attuned to um, making specific style choices and, and not just the same one over and over again, but really the right one for uh, whatever, you know, the project is that he's working on. Um, and, and I think he could he could pull it off screen as, as a screenwriter as well. So that's that's where I would go. But no, the Coen brothers would be would be right up there as, as well, too. But the point being is that you wouldn't protest outside the theater if they were to remake Paper Moon. Uh, as long as it's not like, I mean, if Brett Ratner's remaking Paper Moon, yeah, I'm, I'm then yeah, burn the damn place down. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to protest. Can we talk a little bit about just performances in general? You, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Ryan O'Neill, um, Tatum O'Neill, Oscar winning performance, Oscar winning performance and very deserving too. There's that scene. They're driving down that long flat road. Get them there. Find out where the nearest depot is. Trouble anyway. First you charge too much, then you want to give it away. Where are we now? We just left Plainville. 
$12 for a Bible, then it's up to $24. If I stay with you, I'll spend the rest of my life in jail. There's a deep one, Lincoln. You can take me to Lincoln. You bet I will. Where's Lincoln? Clear over there. Oh, boy, you think I'm going to take you clear over there just to get you to some depot? Then keep going east. We'll hit one in Sylvan Grove. Where's Sylvan Grove? Right here. Well, that, that'll take us down through Lucas. You gotta go through something to get to someone. I am not complaining. I'm just saying that'll take you through Lucas. You gotta go through Paradise and Waldo and Murray and Murray, Lucas. Huh? You wanna get to Sylvan Grove. Well, those are pretty good towns in there. We could do some business in there. Well, it won't matter much. We're out of Bibles anyway. What do you mean we're out of Bibles? Why didn't you tell me we're out of Bibles? You like in the box too, don't you? Oh, you know, you've got an excuse for everything. Could you blame me for everything? If we were running out of Bibles, you should have told me we were running out of Bibles. Well, we're running out of Bibles. Well, then we gotta get new ones. And let's get new ones. We can pick some up in Great Bend. Great Bend. We gotta have Bibles, don't we? Let's see, now we can veer down to Lucas and we'll veer over to Wilson, veer off to Lorraine and Bushton. And we could veer off to Hoisington. Just have to keep on veering, that's all. It's a, I don't know, one, one and a half minute unbroken take of them back and forth. And she really carries it. I mean, he's basically, she's setting everything up and he's just sort of reacting. Mm-hmm. Um, she's amazing in that. And then you've got Madeline Kahn. I liked Madeline Kahn in this before. I loved her this time. I already know the answer to this. Given that I think that you could probably continue on with your affection for this film, I can't compete with your affection. Do you? Is there anything that absolutely desperately needs to be said other than people should see this and experience for themselves? You're so so. You're you're just done with this conversation. Uh, no, that, I mean, is that your? Um, I don't think so. I I the the thing that desperately needs to be said is see this movie, mm-hmm. seek this movie out. It it comes up on i mean it was on netflix a while back it was just on it was on hulu for free or it was, um, amazon for it free, was yeah. just on amazon and hulu it's no longer there so hopefully it'll come back sometime soon but um you know check it out from the library or whatever this is a movie that i think you'll be pleasantly surprised by just how damn good it is or maybe they could just do like you did and enroll in a 70s cinema class and <laughs> hope that it's actually on the syllabus yeah um so chris the correct answer to what someone should be drinking while watching Paper Moon is, of course, Moonshine. So what is option number two? Well, I, Moonshine or just bootlegged, uh, what was it, Three Feathers uh, Whiskey. Okay, that's, fine. That's a, the third choice, then. The, okay. the legal choice. The, the third choice. I have I have two choices here for you because it's. Uh, I think this is a movie that you could watch with uh, as, as sort of a family movie. There's a bit of foul language, but it's nothing worse than... Um, than a lot of what we would consider, you know, it's certainly nothing worse than like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. Right. Um, so my first, my adult choice, my beer choice is going to be Bible Belt by Prairie Artisan Ales for obvious reasons. I mean, they're they're driving across Kansas and Missouri um, in the middle of the Bible Belt, the middle of the Depression. Um, so there's there's that. But this is also this is also a beer that I go back to a lot. That's just really a fantastic, solid beer. It's a uh, imperial stout aged on coffee, cacao nibs. Vanilla beans and chili peppers. So hey, well, okay, back the truck up. What yeah. is a cacao nib? Um, I'm not entirely sure. It's but uh, they put it, it in beer. They they put it in beer. I, I mean, I I think it's a it's a chocolatey bean sort of thing. Is my understanding? I could be totally I, off. I guess this. at this point, you just trust Prey Artisans so much they they I, could slip anything. I I do I do trust them a lot. And this is one of this is kind of the cousin to the beer that really got me trusting them a lot. The Prairie Bomb. Uh, very, very similar beers, but I went with this one just because the name is um, absolutely yeah. it, it is too appropriate. Fits right in, yeah. Um, and it's it's a pretty strong imperial stout at thirteen percent ABV. So uh, one of these you'll be you'll be feeling pretty buzzed. Uh, so it'll it's like taking a shot of moonshine, uh, so or a religious experience, <laughs> or, or a religious experience. Yeah, it'll it'll be like you've just gotten that deluxe Bible. It's like having a, an epiphany drinking this beer. Yeah. Uh, my my second recommendation, if you happen to uh, need something for for the old chitlins, is uh, of course peach knee high. You know, pair that with a nice Coney Island. Yes, exactly. And I was just going to say, I would uh, insist that you have that with a Coney Island from Coney Islander, which yes. is of course a. Tulsa icon. So for all of our listeners in Australia and Japan and everywhere else, <laughs> you need to you come here, really. need to come here, have a knee high, yeah. you need a Coney Island while enjoying Paper Moon. Mm-hmm. Or alternatively, uh, enjoy a nice Prairie Yard Nails Bible Belt from, you know, the Tulsa Brewery Prairie Yard Nails. Absolutely. Well, Paper Moon is currently available to rent or buy on iTunes, Amazon and Google Play or Chris's Blu-ray collection. So if you've seen it, please tell us your thoughts at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail at 484-424-6362. That's 
for cinema. Stick around. Chris and I have to take a winky tinky, but we'll be back after the break to discuss surviving the 70s. God, you have a bladder the size of a peanut. Well, I woke up this morning about 3 a.m. The eggs are in the griddle, the pigs are in the pen, but I don't know why. Some just don't feel right. Slammed them out a long time. I was my granddaddy's, my daddy's, and soon will be mine. But I don't know why. Some just don't feel right. Could it be the cows in the neighbor's pasture? Could it be I should have left with my sweet Jane? They say Jane's insane. She left the planes on a train. Since that day, I ain't been the same. So I'm waiting on a train. Waiting. On a train. Well, I don't know where it's going. I guess I'm just waiting on a train. Well, I went to bed when the sun went down. I couldn't get to sleep. I just rolled around. See, I don't know why. Some just don't feel right. Among cinephiles, the 1970s is unanimously considered among the greatest decades for American film. Bookended by the decaying studio system of the 1960s and the conglomeratization of the movie business beginning in the 1980s, the 1970s exists as a cinematic enigma, at least in our popular consciousness. Sure, this was the decade of Irwin Allen disaster pictures and the birth of the summer movie season, yet we remember it romantically as the Hollywood new wave. Coppola, Friedkin... Bogdanovich, Ashby, Altman, and of course, Scorsese. Fueled by booze and blow, these talented young filmmakers were granted the power of the purse strings and permitted to pursue highly personal projects. In the process, they created masterpieces that were simultaneously unique to their makers, yet universal to moviegoers. All things must pass, and this age of the auteur ended in the twin aftershocks from two insanely popular films, Steven Spielberg's Jaws and George Lucas's Star Wars. When the sun set on the Hollywood New Wave, some of the filmmakers continued to thrive, while others, including many of the decades most celebrated, went extinct. The question is, why? In today's topic, Surviving the 70s, Chris and I will discuss 1970s cinema, in particular why some Hollywood New Wave filmmakers continued to produce great work after the decade ended, while others faded into a coke cloud of obscurity. Were these filmmakers victims of their own excess? Were they rendered obsolete by a culture obsessed with special effects-laden sequels? Or did they simply run out of things to say? Chris, in his book Boom, longtime host of NBC Nightly News Tom Brokaw defined the cultural 1960s as the period beginning with JFK's assassination and ending with Watergate and Nixon's subsequent resignation. Using this same non-literal approach, when do you believe 1970s cinema began? And when did it end? Okay, I have a few answers for you here because it's uh, like like seventy cinema. It's kind of a messy answer. Like Rome, it didn't die all at once. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there's there's a few things uh, to start. I would say, and this is this is maybe just me, but these are uh, two films that I always think of as like a sort of a spark. And those are Breathless and The 400 Blows, two French New Wave films. Okay, so you are going way, way back. Yeah, and and only because I feel the French New Wave was, in many ways, influential to these 70s directors who were, for some of the first students of cinema and students of world cinema, you know, you, you're Martin Scorsese's, you're, uh, you're Peter Bogdanovich, even, who, who's more, he's more in um, American you know, classics filmmaking, but, but it's still part of that era. But, yeah. And, and the point is that these are, these are filmmakers who are for the first time really looking back at those who came before them and using them as influences and using them as sort of a catalyst for what they're making. So from, and actually that's a good point to make is a good lens to look at seventies. And then frankly, cinema beyond that is this is the first time movies were being made by people who had grown up with movies. People exactly. had been born into movies, not had, maybe been 10 or so when and, and movies came to being movies, right. You know, like someone like John Ford, he was, he was just a, he was a professional director. You know, it was, it was his profession. It wasn't right. like, it wasn't like he was a little kid with his little cap guns and, and all of that. Well, honestly, if you, if, if we want to play that approach, we could, and you know, I, I really don't think we should do this, but we could almost go back as far as Orson Welles, who admitted that he studied John Ford. So he might've yeah, been yeah. the first, but that that's kind of the nebulous area we're so, in right now. So my, I, I would say, that sort of as that that's a point that I hold. But if we're going to talk uh, American films, yeah, literal. Hollywood I would I would say there's two that 
stand out. And, and this is, I don't think anyone's going to argue with these either. Uh, one is easy rider and one is body and Clyde. I mean, both of those, they're, they're sort of two different, uh, cultural touchstones for what we then got in the seventies. Well, and I would, I would agree with both of those. I would also add to the conversation, the graduate, yes, I think the graduate, the graduate definitely. and Bonnie and Clyde both came out in 1967. And here's something funny for you is this just occurred to me. Bonnie and Clyde was of course, very violent. It ended in that mm-hmm. massive gun scene. But it came out a year before The Wild Bunch. But I wouldn't qualify The Wild Bunch as a Hollywood new wave. I would say Bonnie and Clyde was almost the beginning of the Hollywood new wave, whereas Wild Bunch was the death, almost. <laughs> the the literal and figurative death of kind of I, the I old Hollywood style. Because uh, uh, I wouldn't put it in okay. the, even though even though Hollywood, or excuse me, even though Bonnie and Clyde came first. Yeah, that's, it's, that's it's, an interesting framing. I do think, I do think Peckinpah in just being his own weird idiosyncratic style fits in this whole seventies because that's, that's maybe one of the, he's timeless. He's like Dr. Who the <laughs> Dr. Who of movie violence. Well, I just mean like the seventies, you have a lot of, you have genre pictures coming back. You've also got just these people experimenting with weird things. I mean like easy writer, for example, was a, was a weird experimental film. And initially like the cut was something like three, three and a half hours long. Was that a weird experimental film? Or do you think that he thought that it made sense in his drug addled mind? I, it's hard to tell. It's, it's hard. It's hard. He was to experimenting tell. with something, yeah, but I'm not sure he was experimenting it, with filmmaking. It's hard to tell. And the he that we're referring to here is of course, Dennis Hopper, but there's even Dennis Hopper slash Peter Fonda yeah, slash everyone involved there, in that. And, and there's contention as to how much, creative control Dennis Hopper really had as far as, because he, from what I understand was perfectly content with his like three hour version and thought that there was nothing that could be cut out and watching it now. Like, I don't know what there is missing from it unless maybe it's padding out a little more Jack Nicholson because he's great. Yeah. Honestly, just two hours of him. And, you know, frankly, given the, the state they were in and what they were trying to embody in that picture, they might as well have made it three hours since (laughs) the movie is in itself. an acid trip. I I would not, I I, I wouldn't sit through it. I wouldn't not without the aid of some sort of uh, mind altering substance. So to answer your second question, the, the death of actually, I want to dive into this because I think we're going to have the same answer. And I, I, I kind of in, uh, well, I, yeah, I've got I've got sort of dueling answers. Okay, the I, I kind of uh, hinted at this a second yeah. ago, but I think the picture that's that may not have indicated the seventies was ending the Hollywood new wave, but the literally killed it, pulled the trigger and killed it. Was actually in nineteen eighty, I think, is when it came out. Yeah. It was Michael Cimino's Heaven's Gate, yeah, which was such a cluster. Speaking of movies that are bloated and long, no, exactly. It's it's like the 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 thing that killed the reason the Heaven's Gate wind up killing the seventies is because everything that was bad about that ex- entire thing was what was praised in the seventies. Is mm-hmm. this one director was essentially given a blank check based on how well, well he did with the, he'd won so many well, Academy with Awards. Deer Hunter, and yeah. so he was essentially given a blank check, and then that blank check continued to balloon and balloon and balloon, and it became such a uh, Almost an act of violent narcissism, mm-hmm. and, well, I, and literally, literally bankrupt the studio, and literally destroyed United Artists. And so yeah. people saw that, and then they looked at Jaws, Close Encounters, mm-hmm. Star Wars, etc., and thought, you know what, this is a more reliable way to make money mm-hmm. than giving an infinite amount of money for somebody to do their personal project. Yeah, my my more graceful end, which is more like it's the punctuation, it's the closing of the door, would be, of course, Raging Bull. Um, with, hmm. with the you, you disagree okay with well this? okay i see what you're going with it you're not saying i i was thinking more this i was thinking more what killed the 70s okay. pictures not what ended but okay that's a fair answer you know, I see what be- you're because there is a it's it's sort of the end of um scorsese making movies in that style a little bit you know that very verite it was his last um, young person movie yeah that, that's a good way of looking at it because then i mean then he gets into he gets into last temptation of christ which is a very like it's a more mature very heavy sort of film um he and then he also starts experimenting with comedy with after hours and mm-hmm. um yeah he gets he gets kind of weird and and in he, he gets the 80s as many directors right. became like he got a case of the 80s he got a case of the 80s yeah uh but i think raging bull is a very like it's a beautifully poetic film about a very violent sport and the closing of it is just sort of a it, it's the perfect punctuation it's a, it's a nice coda and what's funny about that is i mentioned in my uh intro fueled by booze and blow raging bull 
wasn't, but only because Martin Scorsese had been addicted to cocaine for so long. Mm -hmm. He was in the hospital. He thought, one, he was going to die, but then he thought he was never going to make another movie again. And his buddy, Bob De Niro, came in with the book, a biography of Jake LaMotta, and said, I want to do this. Martin Scorsese had no interest in this picture because he just thought it would be a boxing picture. And, of course, it wound up being his masterpiece and then one of the greatest films of all time. So that's a good answer. And and a film that was only made because of the popularity of another movie that sort of transitioned into the 80s, Rocky. The studio really wanted a sequel to Rocky. Producer was like, well, you make this other, this arty uh, boxing movie, and then we'll make Rocky too." So a movie that almost never got made at that. And I, I, I can't imagine where Scorsese would be if um, – if it hadn't, because it's just like, it feels like a, a very seminal um, marker checkpoint in, well, in his career. And, and you can also kind of look at it as that was his rehab. Mm-hmm. And had he not gone to that, he would have just died. That, that would have been the end of him. So that's an interesting answer. Now, the the title, of course, is Surviving the 70s. So there are some filmmakers and some pictures that are of very much of that era, but are also simultaneously timeless, whereas others are of that era, but maybe not so timeless, even if they're still good. Do you think it's simply a matter of, say, I know you really like Paper Moon, but do you mm-hmm. think it's simply a matter of The Godfather just being better than Paper Moon, or do you think there's something else at play there? I think it's something else at play. So I you know, alluded to this a little bit but uh, in, in the review, but I think there's something with Paper Moon that's a little, um, it's not necessarily that it's pulling punches. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's not, it it does, it, it's not a cocaine fueled haze that a lot of these seventies movies were, or, or a, uh, to take from another Coppola film, um, apocalypse. Now it's, it's not this rage filled, like there's, there's a real energy to that. This, this is more like there, there's a lot of attention to detail and, and that sort of thing in Paper Moon that I think you don't get in a lot of 70s films or, or you get it in a very messy way. Well, the, if that if that makes sense, like when I think of 70s cinema, I think of a lot of just frenetic camera work and editing. And and you do get a little bit of that in the editing, right. as you mentioned, but um, it's it's a little more pieced together as whole cloth wave is which feels less yeah 70s. new new wave it does new, a wave is a good way to describe the way fi- the uh-huh. way films look the way they were edited. Um, I think Paper Moon would be the, – the thing about Paper Moon is it could only have been made in the 70s, but it's not a 70s movie. Right, um, yeah. So another movie that's a very 70s movie let's, – let's do this comparison. Another very 70s movie would be The Conversation. Oh and even though God. we both really like that, I'm not sure it's as, quote, timeless as The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two. Oh, do you? boy, man. I don't know about that. Like I, Well, certainly not on a mainstream uh, perspective. How are, how are you defining timeless? I'm – for lack of better words, top 10 AFI, basically every list there okay, is. Okay, so, so from a mainstream, Main, not, not, uni- not so much. Yeah, because critic, I, commercial, okay. filmmaker. Okay, because I think from a I, – I, when you were saying timeless, I was thinking more from a like – audiences today can still pick it up. Yeah. Really. Well, a picture that I, when I say timeless, I mean something that belongs in the same conversation with say citizen Kane or gone with the wind or one like a Mount Rushmore of movies. Okay. Um, you know, there's, there's a really, did we talk about the, uh, I think draft house did a watch this, not that sort of, they, they did this. I don't think we mentioned. Okay. They, they did this list that was basically instead of everyone does their top 100 films, sort of, Mm -hmm. sort of list, they did a list that was counter to that. So instead of watching, um, now I'm trying to think of what, what some examples are instead of watching, uh, citizen Kane, I think it may have been watch F for fake or another, another Wells film. Um, and, and, and that sort of thing. And I, I think, um, Paper Moon maybe falls in in that category, as does the conversation. I think conversation's even on that list, and I don't know if it, it might be the Godfather, Godfather Part Two, um, but it's it's a movie that, yeah, it's not going to be remembered as because it's not a cultural touchstone the way the Godfather was. Like the Godfather was just fire, right? You know, in at the time that it came out, whereas uh, the conversation. It's no chump, you know, it's, I would put it maybe in with, uh, I don't know, maybe something like Dog Day Afternoon or. It's a, it's a film that you look at it and you watch this and you say, this is a hungry young filmmaker who clearly knows what he's doing. Yeah. And is it, you know, he's, he's adept at the, at yeah. the school of filmmaking, whereas Godfather is just this. Actually, I think that's a good way to distinguish it maybe is the pictures and the filmmakers that survived the seventies. 
if they're if their movies were bigger than they were then they continued on taxi driver i think is bigger than martin scorsese godfather is bigger than coppola whereas conversation is a consequence of coppola mean streets is a consequence of scorsese oh, i don't i Does don't that know like i'm splitting hairs you it, see where it, i'm it going sounds, with it this? sounds like you're kind of like i i can kind of see where you're going but i don't know like i don't know if i'm gonna fall on that side of it like i feel like the conversation it's not a consequence of coppola like it is a it's a really good film like I would, if I'm going to rank Coppola films, I, gosh, I don't know where I put, Apocalypse Now is definitely in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pun intended. Um, but I would probably go, I'd probably go Godfather Part 2, Conversation, The Godfather. Like if I was to to, to put those, and those those were all back-to-back movies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think Godfather Part 2 and The Conversation came out in the same year. Okay, then I, um, I mentioned this in the intro. Then do you think that a lot of these guys, Coppola, for instance, just ran out of things to say, with the notable exception of Jack, of course, <laughs> with an, exactly. and Bram Stoker's Dracula? Um, I, you know, that's that's interesting. I, I think a lot of these directors that we think of as like 70s auteurs, they're also, you know, I, I feel like, and actually I was recently listening to this interview that Alec Baldwin did with William Friedkin. Uh, and he's another one that I was going to definitely and, mention. Um, Friedkin, who I actually like, I feel like um, for some reason, and I, I'm not the only one who does this, but for some reason, like particularly when I was younger, I would always get Lynch and Cronenberg kind of mixed up as like, I could distinguish their films, but for some reason they were like, whenever you said, when I, whenever you said when I was younger, I thought you were going to say a story from your youth, like oh, childhood. No. I thought whenever I was a little kid, I always mixed up Cronenberg <laughs> <Yeah>. and Lynch <laughs> happened be, all the time. That would be great. Uh, but, but no, um, I, I was mixed up Cronenberg and Lynch, and, and for some reason Friedkin and Bogdanovich get mixed up as that like yin and yang to each other. Does with that make ex- any sense? To no, absolutely, no, absolutely. With the exception of the ascot, and maybe that's the distinguishing <laughs> trait. I would say Friedkin is actually freakier than yeah. Bogdanovich. De- if you if you definitely. read some of the interviews about how he was directing the Exorcist and what he was mm-hmm. talking with uh, Linda Blair about, very uncomfortable. Yeah, but what I was going to say is in this interview, and I'll link to this in in the show notes. Um, he's talking with Alec Baldwin, like he, they got to talking about, uh, oh, what's the wages of fear remake, uh, sorcerer, sorcerer. They get, to, he's talking about sorcerer and about how like that film was sort of a disaster for him. And that's, that's sort of his end of the seventies, you know, picture that, that kind of blew up. I can't remember what exactly what his advice is, but it's basically like, don't let, uh, your work get bigger than you are. Don't, you know, don't get caught up in this whirlwind of, uh, everything. Like if, if you're on a roll, like you still have to stay grounded to, uh, what what it is that makes you a director. And here's the thing is I think that the ones who made it were able to transcend that because all it happened to all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Spielberg had 1941, and he said that if not for 1941, he probably would have become a world-class D-bag. Mm-hmm. Um, Scorsese had New York, New York, and they both were able to transcend that. Coppola lasted probably the longest before Apocalypse Now happened, and then we've got Freakin with Sorcerer, and then what was Bogdanovich? Bogdanovich, I think, after what What's Up, Doc had a had a high profile. Well, bomb. this this was after What's Up. It was it was Last Picture Show, What's Up, Doc, uh, Paper Moon, and then what Nickelodeon, perhaps. Yeah, oh, but and, point, yeah, and Nickelodeon was like not. It wasn't as big, certainly not as big as something something like uh, Heaven's Gate or and that's that sort the thing, of thing is Heaven's Gate was not just Michael Cimino falling flat on his face. That was the whole idea of the Hollywood New exactly. Wave falling exactly. flat like, on its face. But it was yeah, I think it was a, a steady decline from there because then I can't even tell you really what he made between then and like I mean he made Texasville in like the nineties, which and, is a apparently bad uh, uh sequel to to last picture show although some people i think i want to say ebert kind of liked it uh well he also kind of liked garfield a tale too <laughs> so as much as we love and respect roger ebert he had his uh had, has moments and speaking of which i'm going to recommend you do this if you haven't google image search michael cimino because there's a picture from okay. him from either this year or last year he kind of looks like the michael jackson michael jackson mixed with robert evans if you remember what robert evans looks oh. like so th- what? Yeah, so that just for you listeners okay. and for you as well, Chris. I guess I guess I'll Google this and put this in the show notes too. All right. Um so Chris, would you say that the 1970s is your favorite film decade? It probably is because it's like I mean, it's a playground of just decadence is maybe a good way to to put it. I mean, there people are being given ridiculous uh budgets to make movies that by all you know, arguments probably shouldn't have been made in the first place, mm-hmm. but it, it's sort of this place where the with the success of something like Easy Rider, which was famously you know made on weekends with you know borrowed equipment 
and from Roger Corman, that sort of thing. The the studios were going, well, clearly we don't know what these these young kids want. So let's just let these people who have these ideas and who are students of film, let's just give them what they need and assume they, that assume right. that without parental supervision, they'll be all right. And for the most part, I mean, the, the even if actually they made money and they were really good pictures. So yeah. that it was an anomaly because I don't think that's really ever happened in yeah. American film. And by and large, it worked. One, one thing I would like to sort of append to this whole conversation is. Uh, we're really talking about the American Hollywood system of the seventies, because there's other things also going on with, you know, British new wave, which actually started a little earlier than, than this. Mm, Right. And, you know, other, other things in world cinema that, that were kind of going on at the same time. So, yeah. And like I mentioned before, French new wave was, was, you know, a decade and a half, two decades before. Yes. The conversation. And I love it how we're, we're, we're finally we're like setting the platform for what we're talking about after the conversation. We're we're adding the the asterisks. Exactly. These are the, these are the films in the era that, Chris saw in his seventies cinema class. Yeah, that although kind of era. although if we're talking about that, we actually we did watch uh, David Gordon Green's George Washington in that class as well. Was that just like a like what you had in first grade or something? Whenever the teacher doesn't want to teach, they just play whatever <laughs> movie they have lying no, around. It, I think it was more like the it, it was you know maybe midway through the um, through the semester, and so he threw it in as a curveball of like there's still people functioning in this way today, but not a lot of them. And even, even that, you know, David Gordon Green has gone really weird places. Exactly. In the past, like, well, 10 years. and I, and I was getting ready to ask, but before I, I was getting ready to ask if you think that the seventies as a style should come back, but I would argue, I, I think it is. Well, I, here's what I would argue is, you know, the, the old cliche and I'm the worst of it as well. They just aren't made the way they used yeah, to be. Yeah. But when you think about it, Right now, it's probably the best as far as yeah. both having your mainstream and the mainstream pictures being good quality for the most part, you know, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ag- you know, if you're looking for that. But then also you have independent filmmakers being able to operate in their own it, venue. Yeah. And they're they're not I guess the, the alternative to it is we're not seeing the bloated waste of just budgets being thrown. You know, we, we've got very interesting, very inventive filmmakers doing a lot of things on the cheap. You know, it's not it's not like we're getting uh, these filmmakers that are uh, getting huge astronomical budgets to make their little weird movies. They're they're having to work within the means of a budget, which I think is good and maybe will sustain some of this. And then and then I guess you also have people like the Duplass brothers who came up in a very 70s sort of style of bootstrapping, do it yourself. Well, not just them. It kind of seems like that's almost the new film school is yeah. you make your own movie and then hope it finds life. Being yeah. via streaming, and then maybe you get hired to do Star Wars or Jurassic Park well, or something that, like that's that. That's a whole. That's a whole another discussion for a whole another day. But by and large, I think that it, we can end this conversation, end this show the way we began, which is to say that we are thankful for the way cinema is functioning right now. Yeah, by and large, absolutely. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's our discussion for Surviving the 70s. Do you agree? What is your favorite film decade? Is it the 70s, 1930s, 40s, 50s? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Anything but the 80s. Anything but the 80s. Don't get a case of the 80s. <laughs> Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. You say that you've stopped dreaming Because it eats all your time You've spent your entire life scheming Still you're waiting in the same line as everyone around you But you're not like them, you're one of the few who got something new up your sleeve Don't you? Wasting time singing songs about nothing Wasting our time and hoping Something to come along Wasting time Singing songs about nothing Wasting our time and hoping All right, Hunter, it's recommendation time once again. What do you got from us? Uh, it's got to be something from the 70s, right? There's there's such a big toy box. Absolutely. To and so I'm going to uh, double up on my media here today. So we'll start with the – let's go ahead and start with the bad and then go to the good. Usually okay. we recommend pictures we think you should see. Um, I'm going to recommend – or rather pictures that you should see because they're good. I would recommend you see The Exorcist Part 2 
which is, of course, a sequel to one of the greatest horror films of all time and then arguably one of the greatest films of the 70s. And Hunter, why should we see The Exorcist Part 2? I would say it's probably the worst movie I've ever seen. Really? Absolutely. Not only is it stupid and strange and it, and has kind of a 70s weirdness in the in the environment, but it's also very boring. I don't know. I've, okay, I've, have you, you haven't seen For Your Eyes Only, right? I haven't. Okay. But I, I, I guarantee you For Your Eyes Only is worse than this it, movie. It belo- uh, it's, it's, it's transcendently bad. Have you, are you familiar with the world of Logan's run, even if you haven't? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. It's kind of like taking the exorcist and putting it in Logan's run. What? And then it's boring on top of it. (laughs) It even manages to make James Earl Jones and Richard Burton boring. That's how bad this picture is. So I would, so as opposed to saying, hey, go see this seminal 1970s picture, you should go see this just to remind yourself that bad movies were still being made. Is this something Uh, that you should like maybe have some friends over and, and make a game out of it? Is it going to be easier to digest that way? Um, or if it, your friends, if your friends are Jack and Daniels, then yes, absolutely. That's, okay. that's how you should be viewing it. So the exorcist part two, I'm not sure where to find it. It's it, you know, I, I would normally say, Hey, go to the horror section of your local video store, but those don't exist anymore. But it's that kind of movie of, Oh, I didn't even know this was even made. Yeah. So, uh, my good pick is actually not a film at all, but a book. If you want to know more about the people behind seventies era cinema, I would recommend easy riders and raging bulls which I believe is about 10 or 15 years old now. And it's kind of the seminal document Mm -hmm. of the people who, the people behind 1970s uh, films. This is the book I'm ashamed to say I have never read. That it would be a war crime as a, as a film student, it would be a war crime. So maybe uh, your opinions of some of the guys you like and some of the guys you dislike may change. And that's uh, that's part of the enjoyment of it. Or you may be able to say, I'm able to, remove myself from uh-huh. their personal exploits and still yeah. enjoy the pictures which which you do have to do with a lot of these 70s directors. you do with the exception of someone wearing an ascot <laughs> they, they can commit they can commit any degree of immorality but if they wore an ascot we're done <laughs> okay so those are my recommendations the exorcist 2 and the book easy riders raging bulls Okay, I, too, have a couple of recommendations, one really quick and then one sort of a a real in-depth recommendation. The first one is Bottle Rocket, Wes Anderson's first film, Um, and I would recommend it, but I actually did back on episode two, the Harmontown episode, but there is a connection directly to this film, and that's that uh, Polly Platt, who was famously Peter Bogdanovich's wife before he left her for Sybil Shepard, was a producer on both Paper Moon and a seminal piece of it was a producer both on Paper Moon and Bottle Rocket. I mean, she was a big piece in getting Bottle Rocket made. Um, she was a big champion of young Wes Anderson. So, um, still a movie worth seeing. I believe it's available streaming on Hulu. I think in, in the Criterion Collection, also on beautiful Criterion Blu-ray. Yes, yeah, so or Chris's Blu-ray collection. Or, that's or always, Blu-ray that's collection. always an yeah. option. The, the, the door's always open to you. My, uh, I guess, full-blown recommendation this week is a. Uh, I called an audible. I was going with something else, but I'm going to go with Submarine, which is a movie by a guy who I mentioned earlier, Richard Iowade. Um, and it's, a, it's his first feature film. And it's a very, um, it, it's a movie that I feel like if you didn't recognize some of the, uh, some of the actors in it, like it's got Noah Taylor and it's got Patty Considine. Um, if you didn't recognize the actors in it, you might be able to get away with thinking this film was made in the seventies. Like it has a very seventies feel to it in, um, just the, the composition and in the, in the structure of, of the, uh, the story. It's, it's also like paper moon, um, based on a book, but takes some liberties with that story, a really beautiful movie. And, and it's really, you can tell that Iowate is a, um, student of, Hal Ashby, who was actually also a big influence on Wes Anderson. Um, And it's not that he, you know, it's not one of these where it's like, oh, well, he's just trying to be Hal Ashby, but he's able to, you know, narrow in on what worked for Ashby, how kind of melding this melancholy with humor um, can be a really volatile mix that that works really well. And and actually to that point, how derelict in our duties were we tonight? I mentioned either Hal Ashby or Robert Altman. We you, you mentioned you at least mentioned Altman in your your yeah I, I said yeah. well I said Ashby I said their names but okay, we didn't yeah. talk about point is is we suck yeah but you guys already knew that you've listened to it for twenty five episodes you know <laughs> we suck so yeah anyway. so submarine actually here's here's what you should do you should do a double feature with I'm gonna say Harold and Maude which is sort of the seminal Ashby film I think 
And how many times have I said seminal in this episode? Well, when you couple it with me, I mean, I wouldn't, I would, this should not be a drinking game because you're going to yeah. kill yourself. Yeah. But uh, it, it, the, the Ashby film that if you have not seen Hal Ashby film, Harold Mott is the one that you should see and then watch, uh, watch submarine as well. I think they will go well together. It's not going to feel like he, Iowate is doing something that's very much his own. And so it's not just going to feel like uh, this guy who is copying Ashby, but you will see a lot of influence there. Um, so I think a really rewarding double feature. Well, there you have it, folks. So a lot of uh, seminal choices for you uh, from our recommendations list. And then, of course, you know, why don't you just go through the 70s catalog and see, pick up on some of the pictures you may have missed? There's, there's plenty to choose from. And that's a wrap for our 25th episode of War Starts at Midnight. Check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com for show notes plus weekly movie recommendations. And while you're there, why don't you sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Midweek Memo. It's packed with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and even exclusive articles written just for you. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now, put down that turkey, and leave us a review in iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners, and it'll make you feel awesome. Or if you are the trolling type who's just hate listening through these credits, well, why don't you tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or give us a call on that bright red telephone at 484-424-6362. I'm, I'm just going to say, if you leave us a voice message, I'm probably going to play it on the show. So I'm just going to throw that out there. Yeah, so if you want to be lowercase f famous, kind of sort of, if you want to be big in Japan. If, <laughs> if you want to say, hey, mom, you can download this thing yes. and hear me. Yes, if you want, yes, <laughs> yeah, if you want people in Australia... 16 people in Australia to yeah. hear you. This, that's the way to do it. Music on this week's show comes from Ben Wilson and the Kimberleys. Find out more at facebook.com slash Ben Wilson and the Kimberleys. Tune in next time when we will be discussing Pixar's prehistoric picture, The Good Dinosaur. Thanks for listening. And ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining us over a course of 25 episodes. Have a very happy Thanksgiving. Maybe you would pretend that you love me. Hi, I heard this number on the podcast. This is your wife. Um, was really hungry, hoping to get some brunch or lunch soon. Thought this might be the best way to get a hold of you. So if we could figure something out there, that'd be great. Thanks. Bye.